Hi and welcome. Today I'm joined by Gabor Thomas from the University of Reading and he's here to talk to us about a really exciting discovery um, that he excavated this summer. Hi, welcome. How are you doing? Hi, very well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, this is really exciting news. I can't wait to hear more about it. Um, so we've been talking previously about Anglo-Saxon uh, women with uh, Dr. Andrew Richardson. We were talking about St. Inesworth um, mm. a while ago. But actually, I believe that you've discovered the monastery of another Anglo-Saxon queen. Yeah. Can you tell us about it? So this particular queen is Cynethrith. She is the she was the widow of uh, a, a very famous Anglo-Saxon king called King Offa of Mercia, one of the most famous of all Anglo-Saxon kings. Um, you may have heard of his name in relation to the, the dike that crosses the border of England and Wales, Offa's dike. Um, she was a really important um, person in her own right. Um, a variety of historical sources telling us that she was a big cheese. So she, for example, had coinage minted in her own name, the only queen of this period in Northwest Europe to have that distinction. But yeah, so we can say that she was a, an important political player. Actually, that's really amazing. Just focus on that coin for a moment, actually. I think there are only a handful of them minted or that have been discovered. I think there's 50 odd of them that are known. So they're quite rare. But they're amazing when you look at the portrait um, and okay it's heavily stylized um, but it's just amazing to think that actually that was meant to represent um, a real Ang anglo-saxon queen that's right yes um it's quite stylized but it's still a very powerful image mm. and it's an image that draws upon um you know roman yeah. sort of um sort of ways of depicting rulers so it would have carried particular power resonance for its Roman associations. And given that, so actually, yeah, in terms of, let's think about what whereabouts we are in time here. Um, so we're 700s, we're in the eighth century. That's right, towards the end of the eighth century. The Roman, Roman period ends around 410. We know that they didn't just all just jump on the ship and go home at 410, but around that period. So mm. you're looking at a good 300 years or so. But the, that kind of memory, that distant memory of the Romans um, and mm. their, their governance would have still been around, wouldn't it? Oh, it was very, very powerful at this time. You have rulers that are very, in a very conscious way are imitating um, sort of Roman um, you know, symbols of power, um, of imperial and, 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 and royal power. Um, the adoption of Christianity creates new sort of outlets for channeling the Roman past and, um, you know, underpinning um, rule in this period as well. So, yeah, yeah, the legacy is incredibly strong. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the things that King Offa did. I mean, the dike that he constructed, I mean, people often think of Hadrian's Wall, um, but this is monumental as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's a major civil engineering project, and it's it's one of the clearest reflections of the new level of power that offer um, attained in this period. Um, nothing quite really like it um, earlier on. Um, somebody that really has sort of almost imperial aspirations. I mean, he's in close um, contact with with European rulers, particularly Charlemagne, and modelling his, his kingship to a certain extent on those continental precedents. So, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and it's not only the offers Dyke, but, you know, he's credited with establishing um, a series of um, defensive um, sites, many of which kind of, which we think may have underpinned the Alfredian Fergal system. So, yeah, I mean, a whole series of innovations that were implemented um, under his rule. And so actually at this point, actually, so we're talking um, Anglo-Saxon period, middle Anglo-Saxon period, um, England was actually divided up into lots of kingdoms, wasn't it, at this point? Um, and he was uh, king of Mercia. Do you want to talk a little bit about where Mercia was and how he was trying to expand? Yeah, so the original heartlands of Mercia are focused on what we think today as the West Midlands. Um, so we're really talking about places like Tamworth. Um, that's a key centre. You probably have heard of the Staffordshire Horde that mm. was found within the heart of sort of Mercian territory up in the, 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 the West Midlands, not that far from Stoke-on-Trent. Um, but under a series of kings culminating an offer, the, the borders of, of Mercia expanded south, southwards and eastwards, ultimately to um, as far sort of um, south, southeast as, as, as London and beyond, I mean, even annexing Kent. Um, and this was really a, a, a part of a strategy to, to, to capture and gain control of those regions because it, it permitted access to international trading networks um, um, with the near continent. Um, so, you know, they really did have, you know, that level of aspiration. Um, it was able to achieve those kind of aspiration, political aspirations in this period and under, the, under, under offer. And it would appear at this um, point that Queen Kinnethris, it really kind of, uh, almost level, well, she's level with him by the sounds of it. Charlemagne is writing to the both of them. He's addressing both of them. She's putting her name onto, onto chartners that are being witnessed. Mm. So she's actually really quite powerful lady, isn't she, at this point? Yeah, I mean, all the indications are that she has, she, she can wield, she, she wielded a considerable amount of power in her own right, not just as a sort of, you know, through offer. Um, and certainly she would have continued to exercise that agency as the abbess of a, of a powerful monastic institution, in fact, more than one um, um, after, you know, Offa's death. I was just going to say, actually, so what happens? Um, Offa dies in 797, I think, AD. Mm -hmm. What happens to her then? Well, I mean, it's, it's a traditional route for... Um, royal widows was to enter monastic establishments. This was a very, this by this period had become a, a very established pattern. Um, but we'd be wrong to think of that as a sort of retirement into, you know, the shadows, mm. um, because that's sort of really misconceives what monasteries were. They weren't just places of inward contemplation, but they were very actively engaged with the outer world. Um, in relation to dynastic politics, um, the economy and culture. So, you know, going into a monastic institution was a strategic political act as much as it was a, a spiritual act. Okay. And um, do, we, do we know what relevance there is with her going to Cookham? Yeah, I mean, this is all part of a, a Mercian policy, geopolitics, basically. So the Thames was a vital um, strategic and cultural corridor. So 
there had been this long tussle between Mercia and Wessex, so the control of the Thames. Um, so in the mid eighth century, um, the Mercian um, kings take possession of a whole series of monasteries along, along, along the route of the Thames uh, as a way of, of buttressing um, that, that sort of frontier and securing it um, under um, Mercian rule. So yeah, Cookham is absolutely central to that policy. And let's just think a bit about, um, I mean, you touched on it there that a monastery has many different functions, not just a spiritual one, but can you maybe help to paint a picture of what um, a monastic site like this might have looked like in Anglo-Saxon times? So yeah, I mean, it's probably best to think of, of monasteries in this period as, as entire landscapes, complex landscapes with different elements, because they're, basically performing a whole series of roles. Um, yes, there's a spiritual part to a monastery. It would have had a church or indeed a series of churches, because we know that's one of the characteristics of certainly the larger monastic houses of this period, multiple churches. Um, alongside of that, another important function of a monastery would be the, the care of souls. So you're talking about, um, you know, cemeteries of the monastic familiar, um, um, and it, also the burial of elites and members of the secular society beyond the sort of monastic brethren. So you've got the sort of liturgical, if you like, spiritual sort of stuff going on within the core. But then also, as you move out beyond the core, you would have had all the domestic occupation. Some of that may have been organised on a communal basis in the way that we find in, in relation to later medieval monasteries. So maybe communal buildings of, of, of various types um, and lots of production going on as well. So um, production in relation to um, um, agricultural surplus, turning that into food, storing it um, and other types of industry, um, things like metalworking, um, producing stuff that would have been required to operate um, you know, agriculture and for farming, but also maybe producing stuff that could be exchanged and traded. Such as what kind of things? Well, certainly in relation to monasteries with, with, with female brethren, of which Cookham was certainly one of these, um, textiles, that's lots of evidence to indicate that monasteries were fully engaged in the production of textiles, um, woolen cloth, they had extensive um, sheep herds, um, we know this from the faunal evidence, they were specialising in secondary products from sheep. Um, we also find artefacts related to textile production quite frequently, spindle whorls, needles, things like that. And we know from documentary sources that Anglo-Saxon um, um, sort of nuns were, were celebrated for their embroidery skills. So, you know, this is definitely something that would have been traded yeah, and, and, and I'm just thinking, although it's later on, actually, a good few hundred years later, um, you've actually got the Bale Tapestry, haven't you, which was actually um, done, made and produced by English uh, women. So yes. um, it, there's obviously quite a long tradition uh, for that there. Yes, yeah. Really interesting to hear about the, the trade, the bigger picture. Um, tell us a little bit about the finds that you've discovered during this summer then. Yeah, I mean... Most of the finds that we've got, you know, are what you would expect to find from 
um, a Middle Saxon settlement of this date. Um, so, as is you know standard for archaeological sites, lots of pottery um, of that date, both locally produced. We've got regional imports. We've got Ipswich ware. We've also got imports from the continent, from the wow. Rhineland, and um, from from the near continent as well. Wow. The Lithco North Sea littoral. Um, we've got lots of um, food remains, particularly animal bone. Uh, we've also got sort of objects associated with personal possessions. Um, we've got delicate bronze um, or copper alloy dress pins. We've got a nice fragment of window glass, um, which is something you often find in association with monasteries at this period. So you've got glazed buildings, which is, is quite unusual at this period. Um, and objects, objects associated with various types of production. So a really beautiful, for example, carpenter's axe was wow. um, um, recovered from one of our Middle Saxon ditch boundaries. Oh, it sounds like you've got a real mixed assemblage there, actually. So you, you really are looking at the kind of daily life, aren't you? All the way through from things that you're wearing through to woodworking and to things that are being eaten and um, the, the being uh, stored and cooked in. Uh, so that's, you know, wow, what an amazing assemblage. What would yeah. you say, what's your favourite find? Mm. Um, small find. Some small finds, selection of small finds. Um, yeah, I mean, that's got to be the carpenter's axe, I think. I mean, it's just such an unusual find, to, to, you know, from a, from a site of this period. I mean, you know, certainly from a getting out, out of a sort of domestic ditch context like we did is, 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 is quite unusual. So that's a particularly evocative. Mm -hmm. I should say it, it's actually quite amazing to be finding almost anything of this period actually, because it's very ephemeral, isn't it? Um, Anglo-Saxon buildings, quite often wooden. Um, you're just really looking at excavating post holes, which don't always reveal themselves very well. I know there's been a number of time teams where we've been looking for various Anglo-Saxon palaces and whatnot, um, and it's really hard work. It is, it's a very hit and miss affair. Um, you know, it doesn't have the same, they just, the, the imprint left behind, you know, is, is, is much less than, than particularly the Roman period, but later medieval, indeed, you know, Iron Age and, and, and parts of prehistory as well. It's notoriously difficult to find early medieval settlement archaeology. So, you know, when you, when you do find it in the way that, that we've been able to encook them, it, it really is, you know, it, it, it really is, you know, a welcome sort of surprise because you never really expect it. You may have a hunch, but you never really expect it. And certainly, certainly in the way that, 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 that it's appeared um, at this particular site. And what would you say overall, if you had to describe your favourite moment, your favourite discovery on site this summer, what would that be? It won't sound very exciting, but I'd have to say when we found this really, really impressive metal trackway, um, with lots of reused Roman building material going into it. I don't know, it's just that level of infrastructure is quite unusual on Anglo-Saxon settlements of this period. And when you start finding stuff like that, it suggests you're in a really significant place. Absolutely. When you say metal, do you mean uh, it's kind of like stone surface, isn't it? It's like a yeah, sort stone. of selected stone. So it's creating a, 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 a sort of a, a quite level surface for you know, not only sort of, you know, for, for pulling, you know, wheeled vehicles along and stuff like that. So it's, um, wow. yeah, serious infrastructure.
Yeah, oh, that's amazing. And you can just imagine, you know, you just think who's walked on that surface. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like Kenneth Frith, no doubt herself, actually. Indeed, yeah, yeah. I love that those moments in archaeology when you're the first person to kind of uncover something like a surface for, say, a thousand years or so. Um, it's just a really amazing feeling, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> amazing. So what are the plans for the future then? Um, well, we do we do very much hope to return um, next summer and for future seasons, um, and and we hope to operate the excavation as a field school for the University of Reading to train um, um, our students. Um, it's pretty conveniently located, so it's about half a, half an hour or so journey from Reading downstream on the River Thames. Um, we won't be we won't be going on by boat, but you could do you could canoe down. Um, you know if you wanted to so yeah it's 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 perfectly placed really to, to 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 train students our students fantastic well will you keep us informed of future yeah. explanations absolutely because this is really exciting thank you for sharing the news with us really appreciate it thank you yeah thanks again and look forward to hearing future updates yeah cheers then <laughs>